Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is The State Made Visible. Our opening song is Up Against the Wall, Getaway Car Mix, from the 1995 release Livin' Proof by Group Home. Yo, I be your black panther, all in your dreams. Up against the wall, they tell me cause you can't see peace. And you ain't supposed to die your natural death, that, that. Today we begin a conversation with Razul Moat about his book Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, which will take us on a historical tour of the use of the city as the locus of state power, where the state is given form, we might say embodied, in things like city councils, mayoral offices, and municipal policing but also through real estate development and major events planning. The city moves us around at the state's behest. As we'll hear in the conversation that follows, the city is configured as a managed enclosure that contains within its borders many other configurations of enclosure, from a school system to the prison complex to whole city blocks that are occupied by hospitals and universities. It's in the very dailiness of managed life where an abstraction like the state comes to dominate us. Word, yo, when I get busy, here and over there, to New York City, one for one, one for all, I'm on the wall, my back is on the wall. Today we introduce the concept of the state, which is not the government, which is not the nation, by way of the South Shore Country Club in Chicago, circa 1977, a building that has become the South Shore Cultural Center through the determination of local residents. Since its inception in 1906, through exclusionary policies like no Jews or African Americans or for a time Roman Catholics allowed, it has existed in a geography of threat where violence would be rationalized by the dominant ruling class. This is the Chicago of Mayor Richard J. Daley, who in 1968, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., gave cover to murdering racists by instructing police to shoot to kill any arsonists or looters should riot come to Chicago. Then we'll turn to Mexico City and the 1968 Olympics, where the state organized a massacre of people protesting political suppression of labor unions. Using the Olympics as cover, authorities incited violence and then blamed it on the protesters in order to attack and arrest them. Hundreds were murdered and thousands arrested. The Olympics, like other mega events, have been used to enforce policies of oppression and dispossession throughout the world, all while touting the benefits such events bring to the local population. The state does benefit some people, to be sure, while promising benefits for all and protection from things like disease and crime, often wholesale constructions sold to us by officials and bureaucrats. Perhaps we can agree that there might be such a thing as good government, but can there ever be a good state? And now, the state made visible with Razul Moat on Interchange on WFHB. Okay, Razul, welcome back to Interchange. It's good to be back, Doug. 
So you've got a new book, uh, uh, Razul, Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence. And it's a critique and condemnation of the state, I would think. That's probably not even strong enough to say. Uh, in fact, in your uh, introductory chapter is The State Between Us. It's actually the my first book. So you said hmm. you, you made it sound like... I've just been, it is a new book. <laughs> I've just been chucking out <laughs> books for so much, so long. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, let's just work with the title. I like to do that. So the state between us and it's that state that creates these geographies of threat and produces violence. That's right. the, 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 the whole thing that we're going to go into here. So that's a lot going on already. I mean, it, it's very much a, a 2020 COVID book. Mm-hmm. Um, so. This is not something that um, was very intentional, at least at first, to mm-hmm. develop. A lot of this is uh, sort of the scraps that would have been a book on lynching. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of doing the book on lynching, um, just because of observations, I was making things that, of course, were occurring. Um, I just began to have some um, larger questions, um, sort of like the ways in which uh, how does like power actually operate mm-hmm. and how is power even visible? Um, and so that sort of led me to sort of think about something a little bit more broadly. If I had my full way, it probably would have been city of violence. But because I'm trying to conceptualize um, a way to think about cities um, with these sort of three aspects that I'm sure we're going to get into, myself and publisher sort of thought logically just putting that into the title would be helpful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, I open and close uh, the book with um, the state between us and the city between us. Mm. Um, you know, the city becomes a concrete expression of a kind of mystical state in a, in a lot of ways. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. The city works right. a certain way. Mm-hmm. States work through cities. Yeah. And what do those cities do? How do they do it? Why do they do it? Who does it serve? Right. You know, we don't have city councils to serve the people. Mm. Um, we say those things. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. We say those things, but the city doesn't work for the people. No, not at all. Right. <laughs> at all. And, and, you know, and those types of critical questions are a fundamental part of American studies. Um, right. It's an interdisciplinary project that really seeks to sort of raise those questions of, mm. you know, what is America and not just in terms of the United States, but all of the Americas. And that includes U.S. territories and other spaces of, you know, um, United States sort of um, acts of war. Mm-hmm. Um, but alongside then American studies is this question of geography. Like, what is geography? It's not like um, American studies in terms of having this sort of foundation or effort to critique. If you think about that study, it's more of an examination of like physical features, you know, um, atmosphere, human activity. And under human activity, you sort of have um, these areas of critical geography, cultural geography, urban geography, and uh, black geography. For me, geography is simply the study of the location of power. It's a big, it's a big field. Big field. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, that's a kind of pun too, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a big field. It a big, is. It a big is. field. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's really fascinating because we forget again to think about how we become people. You know, how we, how we, our physical existence, our memories, our our very movement through space is conditioned by everything around us right. you know, by everything that happens to us it's such an interesting thing to talk about because you want want to be you want to be rasul who's who forms rasul yeah right i want to be doug who has my own thoughts and feelings and thinks you know i i can figure a lot of this stuff out i can read these books i can get on top of this idea <laughs> right but also there's so much other stuff in me 
you know, I have no real way to understand it, that it's there even, that it's been, I've been made through it. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. And part of understanding these kinds of um, investigations is understanding you inside it as well, mm-hmm. which brings me to <laughs> how you open your book, Rasul, which is with an image. Yeah. Uh, um, it's actually a newspaper image, right? Uh, yeah, uh, Chicago. I was going to say it's a family photo, but it's it's a newspaper image yeah, um, yeah. of you as a, a little kid yeah. uh, on a on a picket line right. or a protest line, right? right? Uh, you want to describe the picture? Well, I wasn't quite picketing. I well, you got your sippy cup. <laughs> I got a sippy cup. <laughs> but, uh, you know, similar to the book, uh, tone and sentiment, um, you know, it, it was a way to pull together and begin um, organizing my thoughts, right? Um, I always knew of this photo, always was fond of it as a sort of testament to my own mother and how she was very much sort of um, active in in certain types of ways, not necessarily um, advanced in terms of radicalism, but just in terms of, uh, you know, a union, you know, based worker, you know, in terms of Chicago public schools and those types of things. And, you know, my brother was there with me and, um, here is this sort of the facility that I had this historical relationship with, mm. you know, um, the bulk of the time of my childhood, it was, um, forbidden for us. It was private, you know, property. We weren't, we weren't able to access the facility. We were able to access the beach, you know, and so. Yeah, this was the Chicago South Shore Country Club? Uh, yeah, at the time, Country yeah. Club. And of course, now in the present day, those of us who are from Chicago, but also, um, will visit, it's the South Shore Cultural Center. It was fully a country club. And then... Um, 77, is that the photo? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it changes over. You know, the ownership um, leaves or abandons um, the country club because, of course, uh, they're reacting to the changing uh, demographic of the South Side yet again. Right. 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 And, um, and so as people are leaving and abandoning um, uh, the South Side, they also choose to abandon this, you know, huge estate and facility um the city ends up getting ownership of the beach but not the building itself Mm. and so the the golf course and the building remain private property so for us to sort of get to the beach we have to walk across private property and so sometimes you know uh, golfers would intentionally hit their balls in our way you know um but also sometimes um you know, if we had really had to use the bathroom and we didn't want to use the eerie bathrooms that are, you know, typically out in the beach area, yeah. um, we couldn't get in, you know, to the facility. Uh, I remember sometimes actually peeing on the side of the building, unfortunately, right? What ends up happening, of course, uh, even the country club eventually folds um, and the city uh, acquires full sort of ownership of it. And the, sort of the first um, thing they begin to do is have that as the location for the mounted police force. Mm, right, right, right. And then, um, of course, it transitions to what it is presently, a South Shore Cultural Center. So has some small archives, but more so it's an event space. So, but yeah, it, it, it plays a sort of role in thinking about this particular neighborhood in the midst of a city and the sort of history of that neighborhood and how that neighborhood sort of reflects many other neighborhoods. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, and our guest is Rasul Moat, author of Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge, which shows us how the state, an abstraction of power, is realized and made visible via the concrete institutional forms of city management, and that there is no state without the enclosures we call cities. It does a couple of things. One, it sets the tone for you to talk about this, your book in, in general, because it, you can go into the history of the, that, the building, 
the the neighborhood, the changing neighborhood, the demographics, and then how the city responds to the demographics when it's okay to support a particular demographic group with with funding, with you know, with economic incentives, right? Uh, and then when it's when they take it away because the wrong people, quote unquote, right, are right. have moved in. And in that space, though, is is a human aspect that you also then take away from us in your book, which I think is a very important move, right? It's an intentional and important move on your book to say, here's a very personal thing that I can relate to Mm -hmm. and that you probably can relate to reader also. You've got pictures like this maybe in your your wallet or in your photo album, but the personal, while it's important, right, is not what we're talking about here because it's it's not you making these things, you know, what they are. And it's not even, you know, the country club guy making it what it is in a lot of ways, right there. I mean, of course, they have more more agency than, <laughs> right, right. than you do in there. But you want to examine the the structures, right? How does this building get here? Why does it get here? Why does it get taken away? How, does the, how do these things happen? How are these institutional forms made and remade over yeah. and over again? Yeah. And the story, the narrative stops you from thinking about those things. Exactly. If, I, if I talk about Little Rasul and his sippy cup. Correct. The book is attempting to work in maybe like four different ways. Of course, there's the, the full text all the way through. Um, there are the epigraphs that are in every sort of uh, chapter. Um, there are the images that range from photos, um, historical documents, but also uh, maps here and there. And then um, probably lastly are the sources, the compilation of sources that are present there. Um, so those are the four ways I think the mm-hmm. book is working. And so this is not something I think for just one reading or one sitting. This mm-hmm. is not that type of uh, uh, book in any respect. But yes, I, I wanted to pull people in. And then rupture that sort of, um, right. you know, uh, thing that I think people have become used to in mm-hmm. a lot of writing. And it's not to sort of downplay or criticize that type of writing. I think it has its place. But if we're to talk about dispossession extraction, let's get to it. You know, <laughs> right. let's get to talking about uh, the state and, right. and what it, it's doing and why it's doing it. Not how we experience it doing, but like what is it right. actually doing? Because I think if we better understand or focus on the state. Um, I think it would be a little bit clearer for us in thinking about what we should be talking about. Yeah, the logic of it is important, right? And when, when I'm using the term logic there and kind of, you know, to try to take, a, I guess, to set up a space against the, the feeling space of experience. So you yeah. said, you know, it's not about our feelings right. and how we feel in this space. It's about trying to understand logically the way these things operate and the way they set us up against each other. Right. And so I don't, I don't mention myself again until 250 pages later, right? So, so you're not going to sit there and have in and out, you know, sort of, uh, ways in which, um, you know, I'm bringing, no, I'm bringing myself back in because if I do that, that would be completely distracting. Yeah. I'm going to, I'll read a little bit that you wrote there. Um, we see an image of people, you and your brother and your mother. Uh, we see an image of my family and most would see the people and most would be drawn into a discussion of that family and not the infrastructure. This is telling that our first inclination would be the story of the people absent of the infrastructure that consigned and constricted them. So, I, I mean, it's pretty good, right? You know, because we won't talk about those other things, no, you know. No. So, even even the building that you're in front of, you know, has has a story also. It Correct. has a reason to be right. there and has a reason who put it there, why they put it there. The people in front of you and behind you are creating another kind of little story and their signs have a story as well. And this, their signs talk about those issues. Your signs tell a different story than their signs do, right? And, you know, it's just, like I said, I just, it's it's pretty fascinating. And I would say personally... 
you know, how I responded to it. Mm. And I, I don't I don't remember if I said this to you or not, but I responded to it as the guy who knows Chicago mm. from the outside yeah. and is I'm a downstater. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and to me, the South Side is black a black area. Right. And so when right. I when I was reading, I was like, there's a country club? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, good point. Right. Never would I have imagined there was a country club there. It's a, it's a landmark to indicate that um, not only are we disposable, yeah. but also um, the state will go through many different ways to manage its populations and its territory. And so, right, things are not fixed. And I think that also is important that you're also bringing up because I think we become very sort of singular in the time period. Um, especially around political thought. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. We don't have a long history or we can't retain a long mm -hmm. history at all. And so, yeah, here is this sort of landmark that one indicates that clearly there was another right. <laughs> group of people or right. class of people or income level right. of people, um, you know, especially for that era. Right. right? And then um, also different sort of uh, activities that were taking place. No, and, and that point is essential, right? That, you know, life existed before my memory of it. Yeah, and that's that's again a seems like a ridiculous thing to say. But it's a very adult thing to have to do, right? But you're like, Cause, yeah, because right, yeah, you know, like babies in the crib, we don't think of anything until something enters the room. Right. No, no, totally. And you know, even there was a period here in Bloomington when there was a lot of furor about things being torn down, like landscapes changing, right? right? Because landscape is memory also. You know, so people who lived here at a certain time would have a certain memory of this town being a you know, X kind of way. And this is a part of this, this whole situation too, or my understanding of it as well. Yeah. How do you, how do you understand the world that was there and how people responded to it, acted about it, thought within it, became through it, uh, if it's not there anymore? Right. It's time for a break. This is Going Downtown by Gregory Isaacs. More with Rasuo Moat on how the state comes between us through the operations of our cities when Interchange returns on WFHB. Woke up this morning without a meal. to Interchange on WFHB, I'm Doug Storm. Razul Moat is our guest today. He is the author of Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge. In this segment, we'll get deeper into the Chicago shaped by Richard J. Daly, or Daly the Elder. Can the state be embodied in a city mayor?
No, you do a great job too in the book of having, like you said, you had maps and you have like demographic maps. And, and the, again, these maps are interesting because they're also the ways in which the state through the city understands its demographic, understands yeah. its population, figures out how to move its population even as it wants to. We talked in the uh, Devarian Baldwin show about cops preceding <laughs> You know, the way money moves, Correct, you know, yeah. the cops will clear it out or yeah. begin to agitate in spaces and then all of a sudden there'll be new developments in there. And so just fascinating to see how the, how the, how the city and the state work within those, those sort of planning elements. Yeah. The city will continue to do the same things over and over again. And so um, even though it was a country club, hmm. it was a country club for the Irish enclave that was prevented from being in other parts of the city. Mm -hmm. Right. That And so... They constructed, you know, um, and they created a, a space for themselves. And of course, they had a range of income classes within this one neighborhood because they couldn't live anywhere else. Right. And of course, they um, eventually uh, the first uh, sort of uh, interlopers that come in are then um, uh, Jewish, mm -hmm. you know, residents, you know, and and different ranges of numbers, and then eventually, you know, in a large scale, and that they were upset in terms of that changeover and. Um, and then you end up having, you know, entire sort of black population come in post riot era mm. uh, of Chicago. Um, but you still have, you know, remnants of residents from all of these phases. And so then, right, as you sort of notice in the image, um, it's a lot of different people in the image. Right. You know, so it's not uh, necessarily a black protest or a protest of only uh, black people. You know, this is a sort of combined group of people that were outraged by not only um, getting access uh, to this space for public use, um, but the ways in which the city was basically telling this neighborhood once again, um, you are nothing. Hmm. Yeah. So that is, again, like it's one of those places where you begin to think, you know, people touch here of different, you know, races, ethnicities, et cetera, trying to um, respond to their material life. Hmm. Right, which again, as we talk, shapes them. And uh, but at this point, when these things are in this flux space, do, is that a space of opportunity? You know, do you feel like that's a space where there where things can be changed? I don't know wholesale because the state exists and it's going to keep existing right, as far right. as you and I can probably imagine. And the city exists and it's going to do what it needs to do. But as people come together, there's an opportunity there where where you can maybe, you know, have some beneficial change to right. for people i mean i think it's one of those things where um what you're sort of explaining um is not a sense of um can we call come together right right that's not what you're saying no. and i just want to make sure you know sure. listening so <laughs> yeah. they understand like doug is not one of those type of people and this is not that type of show and i'm not going to also respond to those types of yeah. questions yeah. <laughs> but, so come yeah let's a kumbaya moment right, with right, you right. Russell. Right. But, but it's more so like um you know there's a shared interests right. when we experience the same type of material conditions right. uh, that are created or put upon by the state. Right. And so um, where there was not this ability to sort of see um, eye to eye when there, the transition was between uh, the new Jewish community that was coming in, the Irish community that was already present, because there was not a sort of um, emphasis on the city to do something drastic. But when it was now all of a sudden a black population that was exploding in, in South Shore specifically, um, now there's this confluence of people who didn't want to leave, even though a lot of a lot of their peers and neighbors did want to leave. Right. They didn't want to leave. And so now they're there and instead of sort of um, being resentful and angry at their sort of neighbors, their black neighbors that are coming in, they began to sort of mm -hmm. take note too, like, 
hold on, wait a minute, why is our property value going down? Right. Um, why is it all of a sudden our parks becoming, you know, under resourced? How come you're not changing the nets or the rim and right. the basketball courts that you used to change? Right. Um, what's happening here? Mm. Um, I'm still paying taxes and all those types of things. And and so they saw um, a sort of camaraderie in that space of uh, sort of dissent. Mm. Uh, again, because they were sharing uh, very similar uh, material conditions. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, and our guest is Rasul Moat, author of Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge, which shows us how the state, an abstraction of power, is realized and made visible via the concrete institutional forms of city management, and that there is no state without the enclosures we call cities. It's another interesting thing to think about, and like uh, real estate is uh, obviously a, a prime um way in which things are managed and it, when we talk about property values it's an again another thing that's hard i think to really talk about because it sounds like property values are this thing that moves in a particular way and markets are responsible and you know all this but but there's a very there's a very designed aspect to how real estate is managed in these spaces Right. right. And so it's not just like nobody wants to live there. It's as you say, material conditions begin to change. Yeah. Certain people aren't don't sell aren't allowed to sell or buy yeah. in, in this neighborhood. And then there's no loans for businesses. No loans in particular, right? right? So yeah, and business in particular. If there's nothing to do there, no jobs there, you can't open businesses there. Yeah. Right. You know, this, so the city and the state doesn't doesn't help anyone do anything. Banks don't help any in fact they they actively dissuade. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this isn't real estate like through mark through people not wanting to live next to black people or Irish people or Jewish people. This is these are other people making these decisions, not the people living there necessarily. Right. right. But the structure itself and the people that are, you know, operating the structure making these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about what the state is then, mm -hmm. I suppose, because yeah. it's still one of the hard things for me is because I like to point my finger at people. There are bad people and mean people and mean-spirited people and people that are sort of absolutely nihilistic about other people's lives. But they don't have places to operate if we don't have states and cities in the, in the form we do. I right. mean, we, we have the kinds of structures that support mm. this kind of you know, character or personality or temperament, perhaps. I'm probably going in the wrong direction no, for no. you there. but Well, no, I mean, okay. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, at least in terms of the United States, I intentionally did never sort of uh, mention any of the people's right, names. Right, you right. Know, I just use their sort of respective right. number of their order, right? The decision to not really name presidents um, is an interesting one because it's an institutional uh, position. It's right. almost meaningless who's right. in there, right? But, but... You make a clear point of n naming Richard Daly, you know. So mayors are different. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So let's discuss that, right? Yeah, so, yeah, because yeah. this, this is an engine of animus that, you know, has a history almost from day one. Right. Of, of moving the city. Yeah. Right. Exactly. There are people with power and they do make the institutions motor a certain way. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, so what levels of, uh, sort of, uh, government, uh, most impact people's material condition mm, right. that gets to mayors and city council, right? And so, yes, uh, Richard Daly, the elder, and, and Richard Daly, the younger, later on, as well as other mayors really, um, you know, did things to Chicago. Um, and, of course, some people love to laud, you know, their great things that they've done, but 
um, when we sort of look at least from this perspective, starting with this image of this dissent and protest, we can really see some horrible things that especially the Richard, um, uh, daily, the elder, uh, <laughs> daily, the elder, you know, he's going to be an HBO show out <laughs> on this later. Daily, right. the elder. I mean, yeah. you know, this is the same person that, um, uh, was very much uh, happy that Fred Hampton was killed mm. and possibly sort of gave the order because again it was Chicago right. Police Department. Right. Um, this is a person who explicitly, you know, stated um, to shoot looters and rioters. You know, um, giving the order right. um, and allowance of the order, both to in one way, of course, he was saying um, to his police force. Uh, but he was also giving the right away to vigilante groups anywhere. You'll be protected. Uh, that's right. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I, we will not charge you. And he says this on NBC right, right, right. Uh, live. I am ready. Are we ready? You ready, killer? Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. I said to him very emphatically and very definitely that an order be issued immediately under his signature to shoot to kill any arsonist or anyone with a Molotov cocktail in their hand in Chicago to fire a building because they're potential murderers and to issue a police order to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting any stores in our city and above all the crime of arson is to me the most hideous and worst crime of any and should be dealt with in this fashion. I was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision. And this decision evidently was his. In my opinion, he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot looters. And this is the same mayor that um, ends up beating to submission all of these protesters at the Democratic Convention of 68. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, yes, you know, people can sort of laud whatever building he constructed, right. you know, you know, help develop Navy Pier or whatever. Right. right. Um, but uh, no, there's another thing that he also helped develop. And and that's the sort of power and force of a city on to a population. It's time for another break. This is Gil Scott Heron with No Knock, recorded in 1970 and released on The Revolution Begins. You explained it to me, I must admit, but just for the record, you were talking shit. Long rap about No Knock being legislated for the people you've always hated in this hellhole that you, we, call home. No Knock, the man will say, to keep that man from beating his wife. No knock, the man will say, to protect people from themselves. No knocking head, rocking, enter, shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. No knock. No knocked on my brother Fred Hampton, bullet holes all over the place. No knocked on my brother Michael Harrison, jammed a shotgun against his skull. For my protection, who's gonna protect me from you? The likes of you, the nerve of you, to talk that shit face to face, your tomato face, deadpan, your deadpan, deadening another freedom plan. No knocking, head rocking, enter shocking, shooting, cussing, killing, crying, lying, and being white. But if you're wise, no knocker, you'll tell your no knocking lackeys, ha, no knock. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Rasul Moad is our guest. In this segment, we ask, can there be a good state? And double lock your door, because soon someone may be no knocking. Ha, ha, for you. No knock. The question I think there still is, yeah, still is the idea of people having opportunity to maneuver state 
mechanisms, right? right? Now, the mechanisms then seem to be, you know, available levers, Mm -hmm. right? And again, many of us who want to be optimistic Mm -hmm. about the world want to imagine those levers are usable in a different way, Right. right? Is there a good state, right? Is there a good city? I mean, your point, I think, throughout is that the state operates through the city, the city is how things happen to populations, you know, how, but what, to what end? So, yeah. this, what is the state's end? I mean, again, we're talking about particular states. We're talking about U.S., American, you know, states mm-hmm. versus, you know, Russian, Chinese, et cetera. The state has an an absolute sort of tangible nature when it gets into these spaces of, you know, construction. You know, cities. So, yeah. what is the state, and how? Why is it readily taken over by a daily? Yeah. So, why I have this position in terms of presidents? You know, I sort of make the point that um, you know, administrations can change, uh, but the state never changes, right? And so, so in a sense, the administrations are nothing more than regimes, and sometimes they do particular things one way or the other. Um, but um, the state is not government. I think that's one important thing where. I think a lot of people, when they hear the state, they think that it's mm. just a synonymous term for government. And mm. and if it if it if it is, if it is government, why not just call it government? Why you know and, and you know incorporate this idea of the state? Right. And, right. And so what we're sort of thinking about, especially from a Mark, Marxist lens, is something that's larger, something that sort of governs and dominates sort of our sort of entire sense of uh, reality. You know, there's many different theories of the state, you know, whether it's uh, based upon divine origin or um, some sense of social contract theory or, you know, there's patriarchal, you know, matrilineal states. And, you know, um, and even I think there's a theory in terms of history, sort of like a natural evolution type mm-hmm. of thing, you know, from the kinship groups. But for Marx, you know, is this sort of notion that um, there are certain type of social forces that come together and they drive the need to form a state. Those forces are, you know, derived from the will of production and the mm. control of production, and um, and the control of production ends up informing the basis of all social relations. You know, it produces classes, uh, and those classes have, you know, desires, wishes, and so on. But the state is completely against the natural will of people. People would naturally want to have social relations. They don't want to think of. A, they don't want to have a state. And so, yeah, for some people. There could be possibilities of constructing a good state, um, but the very notion of a state, to me, is something that is not government, right? Government is something that we could create to sort of make decisions and so on, but the state is something that's completely um, different um, than government, and it's something that only intends to do one thing, so there's no good state, but also the state produces society, right, and or produces the mechanism for us to form society. You know, and that's kind of call it like the fabricated society. And we fill our everyday, the in-between moments of our work or our labor with things. The state is a confluence of a centralized government that's both elected and appointed, as well as the bureaucratic class, as well as private interests that could be thought of as both um, corporations um, as and business as well as sort of individual wealthy um, and that could be considered you know not only a ruling class but a dominant class mm-hmm. right and I think the most important thing is the state holds a monopoly on the use of force right right, right. Uh, that means uh, violence and uh, power demonstrations um, can only occur uh, at the will of the state and so either the state itself is going to institute violence upon its population 
uh, allow the population to do violence, um, you know, to itself in a concentrated location mm. or allow others to act on its behalf. Um, but no violence will occur without the state's um, right. sort of okay um, because they hold the monopoly on the use of force because if anything that's separate of the state can think of using force, it may think to become get, become the state. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Be in charge itself. Exactly. Right. So the state right. becomes this. So, so the, that dominant class right. that rules over all of that, you know, the means of production, the modes of production ends up being the thing that is the instrument for domination. So it's, it's a, it's a, the state is a way to dominate then population and also um, the sites of production. If the city is a place where the state operates best yeah. um, because the people are confined in a particular way, they're, they're, they're moved in a particular way, work and jobs yeah. and leisure right. uh, is managed in a particular way in these corridors, you know, on these streets, in these parks, in this building, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and it's easier to do it in this you know, geographic area, which yeah. is, which is defined yeah. and it has one border here and one border there. Yeah. And it's harder to do it in the rural communities, but you also don't care. There aren't really many people there. They're not going to do anything. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> right? Don't, right. They're not going to do anything bad. Exactly. Even if they do, who cares? Not going to bother too many people. Yeah. Right. Um, and we can see this feature in every, every particular right. state. Right. right. I was going to say country, but see, you know, right, there, right, there's right. that, you know, sort of way in which. They, right. They where the naming matters. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah exactly. Where you, I've named something. It's right. not different. It's the same thing. Right. But when we sit there and look at the function of a city, it remains the same so that begins to tell us that there is a logic that's operating and that is sort of duplicated even you know if things change over but yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. you're listening to interchange on wfhb and our guest is rasul moat author of geographies of threat and the production of violence published by rutledge which shows us how the state, an abstraction of power, is realized and made visible via the concrete institutional forms of city management, and that there is no state without the enclosures we call cities. As a way in which we are manipulated, you know, to imagine these mega events have mean a certain kind of meaning. It's right. a patriotic, yeah. pa- you know, patriotic yeah. Yeah. meaning. It's a national meaning, right? It's it's a local meaning. You know, all these things that that sort of cohere in this event space, yeah. which kind of becomes a big city mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, a city within a city, frequently, right? But it's the mega event that creates the opportunity for the state to reconfigure its right. population, exactly. right? It's geography, even if it's geography, even it's buildings, yeah, exactly. right? To take certain exactly. places away and build this thing that's going to be here kind of for a minute. And then what was gone is gone. Thank God. What we, we got rid of, we got rid of those people by having a mega event. Right. Right. Like yeah. it almost seems like mega events are designed for this reason. You just explained it well. I'm not sure why I need to explain it anymore, but I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I read the book. I, I mean, but yeah, but I, mean okay. I think there's these right. three things that function as excellent opportunities for the state to use the city to do things like, of course, further you know, dispossessing people, but also further extraction, right? right. And so how you um, find ways to manage a population and move them you know, around because you know if you just did that, there could be an uproar. Yeah. You know, people aren't going to technically just completely right. um, accept hundreds of people just being bulldozed right. Right. in a building, right? Crime, disease, and mega events become, in my mind, the sort of three um, ways to expedite uh, managing populations, extracting uh, more resources, and accumulating more wealth, right? right? And so 
uh, you have to criminalize a population, and so that effectively, you know, um, you know, places a population on notice um, as a potential threat, and right. uh, and then all of a sudden they can be incarcerated, uh, killed, or sort of right. you know isolated and taxed into poverty exactly. nonstop. Right. But they're yeah, right. yeah and little. then. And then if uh, disease, if their disease or the the so-called vector of a disease, then that too, people can sort of, okay, yeah, that's completely fine to do what you're doing because we do not want that disease uh, coming into the United States or or whatever. Well, it's a big part of how you demonize the the migrant populations, right? You're like, one, they have disease, two, they're criminals. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's right. easy. It's it's it, it works every time, right? Yeah, I mean, you yeah. think about right during uh, World War II, and then of course the so-called Spanish flu that comes after. Right, right? they were literally scrubbing uh, Mexican Americans and Mex- Mex- Mexican nationals at the El Paso, mm. you know, Ciudad Juarez yeah. border with yeah. gasoline mm. and kerosene, right? Um, because they supposedly had typhus, you know, right. and, uh, and other particular diseases, which. There was no evidence, of course, you yeah. know, and that's also not the way to do it. <laughs> you know, right. You know, that's we can't blame Trump for that one. Exactly. But, no, but it sounds like it. it right, right, no, I mean, right. that, that's just not, you know, but yeah. anyway, crime and disease. Right. And that's been the old school yeah. sort of excellent sort of ways to do it. And all of a sudden the city in terms of its management and its uh, growing expertise of individuals that learn mm-hmm. how to govern it, um, all of a sudden notice that there's these events that you mm-hmm. could sort of put more resources in and make them so large of a spectacle that they could be the next thing. And not only the next thing, they could be the more benevolent way. Seems like a great, to great, remove great because, for the community. Because you're not yeah. criminalizing anybody. Right. Um, you're not labeling anybody as disease infested. You're just bringing a stadium. You're just bringing culture, new culture. Yeah. Um, you're helping to generate local, local business revenue, right. um, so forth and so forth. At night, just don't notice that we're also um, right. leveling, you know, a public housing complex right. or um, beating you know, people who are homeless into submission, right. um, you know, off the street. Right? right. And so exactly mega events become this sort of fantastic way. And so, of course, we can think about the Olympics and yeah. literally um, every city that has, you know, managed the Olympics since um, I think you know, the early 60s, mm. um, there's been consistently either issues of both heavy state police repression or ways in which people have been large scale displaced, every mm. single one. But what we see and what we don't realize is part of it. So what they sell us in terms of new bus lines and new electric buses, um, what ends up happening is that they rerouted the bus. Those poor working people um, won't be either seen by tourists or um, those poor working people have to walk to work into the city right. uh, because our new buses are going to service a whole nother sector of people right. um, or the trains or, you know, and right. so we will clamor for the, uh, the rail and not realize that the rail that's going to be constructed is going to do something to somebody. It's right. never going to be just constructed for the benefit of people. Um, but these are the elements of mega events that we can sort of, see that are happening that ends up having these results and is it that they just happen to have those results or is it that that is this sort of intent or usefulness of the mega event
The new moon rode high in the crown of the metropolis Shining like who on top of this? People was tussling, arguing and bustling Gangsters of God thumb, hardcore hustling I'm wrestling with words and ideas My ears is prick, seeking what will transmit The scribes can apply to transcript It's time for our final break. This is Respiration by Blackstar. From the 2002 release, Mostef and Talib Kweli are Blackstar. When we return, we'll ask, how are the Olympics like crime and disease? Stay with us. Hard knuckles on the second hands of working class watches. Skyscrapers is colossus. The cost of living is preposterous. Stay alive, you play and die, no options. No Batman and Robin. Can't tell between the cops and the robbers. They both partners, they all heartless, with no conscience. Back streets stay darkened, while unbelieving hearts stay hardened. My ego talent stay sharpened, like city lights stay throbbing. You either make a way or stay sobbing. The shiny apple is bruised, but sweet, and if you choose to eat, you could lose your teeth. Many crews retreat, nightly news repeat. Who got shot down the lockdown? Spotlight the savages, NASDAQ averages. Welcome back to Interchange. In our final segment with Rasul Moat, introducing his work on how cities are the tangible location for the execution of state power. In effect, no cities, no state. We'll turn to the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, where the raised black-gloved fists of Tommy Smith and John Carlos became iconic expressions of black power. But the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City was also the site of the Tlatelolco massacre. Hell froze the night the city slept The beast crept through concrete jungles Communicating with one another And ghetto birds will ward us forth From the hydras to the gutters The beast walked the beats But the beats we be making You on the wrong side of the track Looking visibly shaken Taking in plungers Plunging to death That's painted by the numbers We're crawling under plow pressure Cats playing God This is just in the, in the introduction But the, you know, the little bit on Mexico City Is really interesting for the Olympics uh, um, It's in a telethical uh, yeah. you know, massacre you know. And it's just uh, it's one of those things That's unfortunate because I think, um, you know, we want to remember the uh, fist of John Carlos and right. Tommy Smith. And, you know, and of course, now, you know, they're no longer despised. And so, you know, they're right. always celebrated and we love to have the posters and the T-shirts with them and so on. And it's not to say those fists aren't important right. you know, at right. all, you know, but it's just the fact that uh, we've made a choice to also not know of or remember all of these. Never students. heard of this before. That's right. Students right. who um, who were trying to protest um, not only uh uh, the shrinking of city resources and state resources from um, the local community. So they they were protesting this for months before the Olympics right there in 68. And what ends up happening is that uh, more and more police repression sort of you know comes upon them. I mean, there was even one case of uh, the military police force um, firing a bazooka into mm-hmm. like a classroom, right? Um, and and then once you get to like days before, I mean, we're saying like literally days before the Olympics, um, they needed to clear out, you know, this and they meaning, you know, the state you yeah. know, through the city uh, needed to clear out this public housing unit so that they could make way for um, a village for the athletes or something to that effect. And um, so what they end up doing is that uh, they staged um, counter protesters on the roof. So. Um, you have the military um, in tanks down on the ground. Um, and, of course, the residents were in their building scared, you know, and fearing for their lives. Right. And then all of a sudden they had supposed sniper protesters, which were actually um, city police, right. um, firing down onto the army, which then aided the army then to fire back. And, right. of course, round up both residents as well as students. And many of them were killed. Some, you know, Many of them were disappeared. 
And it's just only recently that um, the records started to be opened up by many of the actual surviving protesters. Um, they kept pushing, pushing for an investigation. Hmm. And mind you, this was known. So Tommy Smith, um, oh, John Carlos in particular, um, has always sort of brought it up. Hmm. But it's just sort of like something that we just don't pay attention to. That during the Olympics, Howard Cosell even talks about the fact that these fancy rooms and, you know, with and fancy buildings um, that the elite was coming to observe, you know, the Olympics from their sort of, right. you know, rooms of, I think, champagne or whatever. Right. I think that's how Howard Cosell sort of, you know, mm -hmm. finds it. It was at the expense of the poor people of Mexico, you know, city. You know? Mm -hmm. And he mentions this, you know, live while broadcasting. Are we ready? You ready, killer? Tell me when you're ready. I'm ready. They say the games are sports, not politics. Something separate and apart from the realities of life. But the black athlete says he is part of a revolution in America, a revolution designed to produce dignity for the black man, and that he is a human being before he is an athlete. He says his life in America is filled with injustice, that he wants equality everywhere, not just within the arena. He says that he will not be used once every four years on behalf of a group that ignores what happens to him every day of all the years. He says he earns participation, wins fairly, and that he will use his prominence earned within the arena to better his plight outside of it. He says, don't tell me about the rules. The U.S. doesn't dip its flag in front of the reviewing stand, and that's a rule all other nations follow. He's aware of backlash, but says he's had it for 400 years. And so the Olympic Games for the United States have become a kind of America in microcosm, a country torn apart. Where will it all end? Don't ask the U.S. Olympic Committee. They've been too busy preparing for a VIP cocktail party next Monday night in the lush new Camino Real. Howard Cosell reporting from Mexico City. So this was known. This was known. And so even though we might not have known the exact numbers of who was killed or displaced, it was very useful in that respect for yeah. a, a new type of Mexico to be born, right? Because Mexico was on was on the national scene, so it could be now be seen as a viable location for more. Yeah. So the state serves someone always, and or the city serves. The the, state. Uh, yeah, the city does the <laughs> the work of serving the state. Right. Um, yeah. But these again, these are so I have trouble, I guess, articulating what I who it's serving. Mm. Right, because it serves a class, yeah. and all kinds of people can belong to a particular class. Right, right. But in the way we're talking about it, it's a ruthless thing yeah. to talk about, even to think about it, it exists and it can happen at any point. State can decide whatever it wants to yeah, do at yeah, any point yeah. and has all the power to do it. Right, right. And so, uh, so we exist at the pleasure of the state at best. Right, mm -hmm. and it seems like even even the things we do in protest, even the things we do to stand against the state, are allowed by the state because they also will serve the state somehow. Mm -hmm. You know, the state will be able to figure out to make that protest serve itself. Um, as you as you point to already, it's a, it's it's okay for riots to happen in certain places. Correct. It's okay for people to burn their houses down in certain places. Correct. And so the state makes use of the anger of the people. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes use of the way that it's it's created people to be angry. So so what is this thing that has has power over us? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, thinking about the different classes, right? You know, and so yeah, I mean. People talk about like the capitalist class. And right. If we think about the capitalist class, those are all these sort of executives that sort of keep uh, the money flowing. But it's executives, not managers, executives. Right. right. And then 
But that's not necessarily the dominant class. So if we're thinking about the dominant class, uh, we have to think about those who have they're not they're not restricted by any laws because they have absolute freedom, right? right? And also, um, they can do what they want, and they you know they can live with the, where you know where they want, and um, they don't have to work. Uh, right. And so, who these people are, and you know, it's very hard for us to sort of imagine because we just work every day, right? right? You know, all we know is. Um, there's some people who make more and there's some people who make less. And so we can't conceive of there's people who literally do not do anything but just accumulate. They right. receive the benefits of that yeah. accumulation. They're, and, and, they're, that's, and that's a dominant class. Yeah, that's immaterial that, that they're who they are. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB, and our guest is Rasul Moat, author of Geographies of Threat and the Production of Violence, published by Rutledge, which shows us how the state, an abstraction of power, is realized and made visible via the concrete institutional forms of city management, and that there is no state without the enclosures we call cities. The explanation of a superstructure creates this space where certain people fill that particular structural space. Right, right. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter if it's Rothschild. We don't have this image. Yeah, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if there's there's Bezos or anybody else. It doesn't matter. It's just the structure. It creates that ideological way in which we want to move up there, Mm -hmm. right? There's uh, even people who will never even come close to moving up there have the mythology, yeah, the aspirational drive to think, well, I'm going to be wealthier one day or or have more one day. If if, if I'm a billionaire, I will, (laughs) you know, place pipes all throughout Flint. You'll fix fix Flint. That's That's right. right. That's right. Um, And people never process, well, you can only become a billionaire if you like do if you if you ruin Flint, really if you ruin well. Flint already, <laughs> right, right. right? I ruined it. I fixed it. I ruined it. I fixed or, it. Or you or you ruin some other Flint right, somewhere right, else, right, right, and right. then you just fix up the that's Flint right, that that, right. that you like, right? You know? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you know they may have some pet projects here and there, right. that, you know, right. save the gray wolves or something like right. that, you know. Which he says is really important to sort of who cares, right. you know, you know the names or whatever else, you know. We know right. what it is, but I think we also push it out of our mind sure. right and so um we just sort of you know look for one individual to hate or right. you know or one family to hate or one company to hate but no yeah. like well it's so much easier to do russell yeah, you know it that is, it's so it much is, i mean that's why there is that's what orwell wrote the two minutes hate yeah right yeah. so easy to do yeah. and uh you know we pointed this out in the previous two shows too about uh, again about the university the university serves this kind of role mm-hmm. in many ways itself right, right? It, yeah i think there's been key sort of text that provided inspiration to even yeah yeah think good this, sure this yeah way. and i you know it's not to sort of say like hey this is a reading list you all to listen to i do like reading lists <laughs> though. but yeah but i think we can sort of think and you know uh i know you have different reactions to some of these publications sure. you know and um you know, of course there's wb du bois you know landmark mm-hmm. sociological study which is the philadelphia negro and right. one of the earliest sort of studies on poverty and also you know the social construction of race right he's the first right. person that breaks from the norm and right. says race is not biological inheritable and so on Henri Lefebvre, you know, production of space and sort of thinking about the ways in which space is intentionally produced. It is not something that's happenstance. It's not something that's empty. You know, Daniel Nimser, who I know you've had on this show and the infrastructure of race is incredible. And hopefully, you know, in uh, probably some of the future sort of um, episodes that will sort of follow Mm -hmm. up with other aspects of the book. 
but we can sort of go get into yeah. Daniel Nipsey because I think his work it was hugely in, you know, important and thinking about how old this management of cities has sort of been. I think all of Mike Davis's scholarship, sure. whether it's City of Courts, Ecology of Fear, Dead Cities, Planet of the Slums, you right. know, Set the Night on Fire, you get the idea that I think his work on just cities consistently um, staying on that sort of message in that way. But that's for cities. And I think in terms of thinking about how populations are managed in certain ways, Nicole Siegel's violence work. Um, you also had jo- Joshua Clover on in terms of riot strike, riot. Right. So clearly I'm, I've been an interchange listener <laughs> for, for quite some time. Yeah. But also uh, Sylvia Winters, um, mm. no uh, humans involved. Um, and then Stuart Hall and his uh, graduate student body, um, the police in the crisis. Mm. Um, and then I think lastly, of course, you can't, you know, think about any of this without thinking about France Fanon, uh, The Wretched Earth. And I think these books sort of combine, sort of form the basis of thinking about the state and thinking about these populations and how it sort of functions. And again, as I sort of began with how to think about how power functions and uh, where sort of uh, how, how power is visible. That's our show. We'll close with The Clash from the 1979 release, London Calling. This is The Guns of Brixton. Thanks to Rasul Moat for joining me in the WFHB studios to record the first of several conversations on the city as the place where state power is made visible. And thanks also to Rasul for our music selections today. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Feels like Ivan, born under the Brixton sun.